Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. So what is the right speed to take when you're approaching a relationship? Each of us has a different speed that we take when we're coming into a relationship. For some of us, it is full speed ahead, pedal to the metal when we come into relationships. For others of us, we approach relationships taking kind of a slow and steady approach. But some of us actually come into relationships kind of tapping the brakes or just putting the pedal, hit, hitting the brake pedal as hard as we can, avoiding a relationship. What speed do you take when you are approaching a relationship? I have been told that I take a rather fast approach when it comes to relationships. My wife shared a video with me recently that was trying to translate the thoughts that introverts and extroverts are thinking toward the end of the day, toward the end of a week. And there was a a bit of the video that translated what an extrovert is saying, what they're actually thinking is, I need to see people. I must get out of here. I must connect with another human being. And the introvert, by contrast, is thinking something along the lines of, I have exhausted my word count for the day. Please leave me alone. And in the video, there was a scene where the introvert actually said about the extrovert that if they go in public, they're going to meet someone, start a conversation, make a best friend, and in 30 minutes, be planning a family vacation together. And my wife pointed this part of the video out to me, implying that that was me. And I suppose, in a sense, it is, because when it comes to relationships, I am kind of a pedal-to-the-metal kind of guy. But at the same time, we all recognize that relationships come with some inherent risks to them. It is risky to start a conversation. It is risky to build a friendship. It's risky to date. It's risky to get into a marriage. It's risky to have children. It is very risky to try to bring reconciliation when a relationship has been broken. And we all recognize that in relationships, there are some risks. And those risks with time make us want to tap the brakes, if not hit the brakes hard. So even though there are risks in relationship, we come to today a second skill that is required for relationships. And that skill is take the initiative. Take the initiative, because at some point, if we're going to have relationships, at some point we have to let our foot off the brake at least a little bit. And it's interesting because the Bible tells us that we are to take the initiative when it comes to relationships. Now, to see what I mean, we're going to look deeply today at an episode from the life of Jesus. Now, the truth of the matter is I could have looked at this topic by treating a theme of hospitality that is found throughout the pages of the Bible, but I realized if we looked at this topic that way, you might walk away from here today with a few helpful things that you're thinking you should do 
But instead, what I want you to see is that the idea of relationships and the skill of taking the initiative is actually built deeply into the gospel. And so we're going to look at the gospel today. We are going to look deeply at who Jesus is. And we're going to look at what Jesus does and see something about what he wants from us. As we begin looking deeply at this episode from the life of Jesus today, we recognize that Jesus ate with sinners, and we find Jesus eating with sinners in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, and I'd like to remind you of those now. They read, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he, that is Matthew, rose and followed him Jesus. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And so this passage begins with Jesus calling Matthew to be Jesus's disciple. This happened in all likelihood in the city or the town of Capernaum, which was Jesus's adopted home base of operations for his ministry. And Jesus is speaking to one who is referred to as Matthew. And it's interesting because that is in all likelihood, almost certainly the same person that in other places in the Gospels is referred to as Levi. He probably had multiple names, Levi and Matthew. And the text says that Jesus went to Matthew's tax collecting booth, meaning that Matthew was a tax collector. Now, there's some debate among scholars as to what type of tax collector Matthew probably was. In the city of Capernaum, there was a major east-west trade route, and so he may have had a toll booth and collected tolls on that road. It's also possible because Capernaum had a port that Matthew's tax collecting booth was set up at the port and that he was collecting customs duties on trade that was coming into the region. And in either of these cases, it is fundamentally important to understand that the taxes that Matthew was collecting ultimately fed the Roman Empire, which was an occupying power occupying Galilee at this point in time, which made Matthew a collaborator with the empire. Not only that, but to be a tax collector meant inherently that Matthew was corrupt. Because you see, in order to become a tax collector, you had to pay a franchise fee to the government ahead of time. And then as you collected the taxes due to the government, you would recoup that franchise fee and make any profit that you could by collecting excessive taxes. Taxes more than what were due the government. And so, Matthew was inherently corrupt, a collaborator and corrupt and consequently despised by his own people. So it is shocking then that in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus, a respected teacher and rabbi, went to the tax-collecting booth of Matthew and said, you, I want you to come and follow me. And it's surprising that Matthew's instant response was to get up and go and immediately leave his old life behind 
and follow Jesus. Then immediately after that, we read that Jesus was at a feast with other such people. Now, the text is not 100% clear on the timeline, but it implies that possibly even later that day, after Matthew chose to follow Jesus, that there was a dinner given. And it is implied but not stated that that meal would have been at Matthew's own house. But, but it seems that Jesus went to a feast at Matthew's house. And, and we know that it was a feast because of the way that the meal was prepared and served. The text says that Jesus reclined at the table. And in all likelihood, that means that they were following the custom of there being couches or benches surrounding a table. And Jesus would have been reclining with his head toward the table and his feet away from the table. And this was a custom at a feast, meaning Matthew has throne of feast. And that feast reminds us that Matthew is overjoyed at the way that Jesus has changed his life already. And this feast is being given to celebrate the joy of Matthew's new life. But there's Jesus sitting at the table with Matthew's friends. And because Matthew had been ostracized from his society, the only people who were his friends or other tax collectors and profound sinners like him. And Jesus was at the table eating with them. And this brings us to our first takeaway, which is that we were to go where people are. Jesus is doing something here that reminds us once again that Jesus is Emmanuel. Now, I don't know if you remember, but at Christmas, you hear every year prophecies read saying that the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, would be Emmanuel, and then you get the translation of it, which means God with us. And we are reminded at Christmas that Jesus is God coming to take on human flesh and be with us, to be among us, to be one of us. But we forget that Jesus continues to be Emmanuel, fully God and fully man in one person, God coming to be with us. And here we see it all over again. Jesus is Emmanuel. He has come to be with Matthew. He has come to be with these tax collectors. He's come to be with these sinners. And that reminds us that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and he's come to be with us, with you and me. But in doing so, Jesus is showing us who he is, who God is, and Jesus is showing us what he does. He goes where people are, and in doing so, he's showing us what he expects of us. He expects us to do the same thing that he's done. We have to go where people are. And sometimes this means we do something very big, like there are some of us who are called to go to other places, to foreign nations, to, to other groups of people who have no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we go to where they are and we share the good news about Jesus with them. And others of us are called to go in still bold ways. We go across the dividing lines in our society to build relationships, to share hope in Jesus Christ, and to make the gospel enfleshed in our day. Some of us 
go where people are in big and bold ways, but we all go where people are, and sometimes we go where people are in slightly smaller kinds of ways. Every time we build a relationship with someone new, every time we enter into a conversation with someone that we don't know well, we are going where people are. It can be as simple as finding yourself in a conversation and asking questions and listening to what the other person says to get to know them. Jesus shows us and then calls us to go where people are. But you see, when Jesus went where sinners, where tax collectors, where people were in his day, it raised a question. And that question is, who is worthy of hospitality? Who's worthy of hospitality? Because in verse 13, or verse 11, we find the Pharisees, the religious leaders, asking some tough questions Verse 11 goes on, and when the Pharisees saw this, that is Jesus eating with sinners, they said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the Pharisees asked a really important question of the disciples. Why does your teacher eat with people who are sinners and impure? And to understand what that means, you have to understand a bit of who the Pharisees were. The Pharisees, you see, were a group of people, of scholars, who studied the law very closely. In addition to studying the law closely, they studied the traditions about how the law was to be interpreted and applied, and then they interpreted and applied that law very strictly in their lives. And that meant that they looked around the people who did not do that who didn't know the law on that level or apply it on that strict level, and they separated themselves from those people. Now, that meant that they separated themselves, first of all, from just about everyone in that society because the regular people of the land did not understand the law or apply it on the same level that the Pharisees did. So they separated themselves from almost everybody and called them sinners, But it seems here that Jesus has gone a step beyond, a step further. Because you see, Jesus is not just eating with your average everyday sinner in the Pharisees' minds. He's eating with tax collectors. And in that culture, because they were collaborators and because they were corrupt and it hurt so many people, tax collectors were considered a special kind of unclean. They were as unclean as that society viewed a leper. In fact, if a tax collector entered a house, the tax collector, by his uncleanness, made the entire house unclean for a period of time. And that's who Jesus went to be with. That's who Jesus ate with. But we're learning something important here about who Jesus is and what he expects from us. Because we come actually here to a deeply important second takeaway. Let's go ahead to the second takeaway. Number two, risk something for relationships. 
Jesus is teaching us that everywhere we go, there are going to be risks involved in getting into a relationship with another person. When we get into a relationship with another person, we're going to be asking ourselves questions about what that relationship is going to do to us. We're going to be asking the question, if I get into this relationship, am I going to get hurt? If I get into this relationship, am I going to do damage? And Jesus is trying to help us see by going to these places where sinful people are found that the more important question to ask is, how might I go into that place and be the light of the gospel? We're going into the dark places of the world, and we are shining the light of Jesus Christ into those places. And the Pharisees are saying, look, it's dangerous to go into those places. And Jesus is saying, sometimes you've got to take a risk. Sometimes you've got to go into the darkness and shine the light of Christ in those places. And so if we think like Pharisees, we will always find reasons to tap the brakes. We will always find reasons to stop having a relationship. But Jesus is showing us by his example that sometimes we have to risk something for relationships. Then Jesus goes one step further. See, Jesus actually calls sinners to the table. I want you to see in verses uh, 12 and 13 that Jesus is actually going to set the record straight with the Pharisees. Verse 12, but when Jesus heard it, that is what the Pharisees had said to his disciples, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The profound teaching here. And in this teaching, Jesus is telling us that he is the great physician. See, Jesus, in response to this question from the Pharisees about why he would eat with sinners and tax collectors, he tells a, a proverb, if you will. It, it's a proverb about a doctor, a physician. And Jesus is comparing himself to being like a doctor or a physician, one who brings spiritual healing. And Jesus says, who is it who needs a doctor? Who is it who needs a spiritual physician? He says, well, definitely the person who is sick not only needs a spiritual doctor, a spiritually sick person needs a spiritual physician, but that spiritually sick person tends to know that they need that physician. And Jesus has said, I am that great physician. I have come to be with the spiritually sick. I have come to be with the sinners. That's what I've come to do. But then Jesus challenges the Pharisees' own understanding of themselves. Because he's already said, well, you know, a person who is well doesn't understand their need for a physician. You see, the, the Pharisees thought they were spiritually well. Jesus goes on to say that the Son of Man came to call sinners. The Son of Man didn't come to call the righteous. 
And the Pharisees think they're righteous. So the Pharisees think to themselves. They think that they are well. And they think that they are righteous. But that's where they've gotten everything terribly wrong. And there's irony built deeply into this passage. Because Jesus knows that the Pharisees are not well. They're spiritually sick. And they are not righteous. They're sinners. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, we read, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. The Pharisees are spiritually sick and sinners, and they don't even understand it. Consequently, because they don't understand their own need, they miss what it is that is being offered to them in Jesus. In Romans chapter 5, we learn a little bit more about what's being offered to them. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. God is offering the Pharisees the very thing that they long for, the righteousness of God, but they can only get it by faith in Jesus. They can only get it by faith in Jesus. And so the Pharisees are completely deceived about who they are and wrong about what Jesus offers them. And so Jesus rebukes them pretty solidly. He says to them, go and learn what this means. That's teacher for saying, I'm the teacher. You've taken the test and you have failed. Go and do your homework now. Go and learn what it is that you were supposed to have learned. And in this case, he's saying, go and learn what the Old Testament says, what the scriptures say. Jesus says, remember in the Old Testament where it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, he's quoting from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where God says through the prophet, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, when Jesus quotes Hosea chapter 6, when he quotes just verse 6, he's really implying, remember that whole chapter? And what happens in that chapter in the Old Testament? Well, God is speaking through the prophet Hosea, and he's saying about his people, my people whom I love are fickle, and they walk away from me quickly. And through the prophet Hosea, God says, my people, they lean on ritual. They do these rituals, and they think that, that they've done what I want. But God says, what I really want is something else. In the New Testament, as Jesus quotes it, he says, what does God really want? He wants mercy, not ritual. In the Old Testament, the word that is used in that passage is the word chesed, 
which is translated most often steadfast love. And this is the fundamental character of who God is. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, God says about himself, who am I? I am the Lord. I am a God, merciful and gracious, abounding in hesed, abounding in steadfast love. That's who I am. And so Jesus says to these Pharisees, you don't understand who God is. You don't know who God is. You don't know the Bible. You don't know who God is. Here's what you do. Go and study the Bible. And when you have studied the Bible, maybe someday you will understand who God is. And when you understand who God is, you'll know who I am. And when you know who I am, you'll understand that's why. That's why I went where sinners are. And we find a very important takeaway, our third of three takeaways here, and that is offer a relationship with yourself and with Jesus. You see, Jesus has taken the initiative toward us. And that's fundamentally important for us to understand today. Jesus is God who set aside the privileges of heaven, the comfort of heaven to come to earth. He took the initiative toward us. Jesus is the Son of God who took on human flesh, fully God and fully man, to come to us. He took the initiative toward us. Jesus is the one who lived in our midst, who showed us up close, who came to us and taught us what God's love looks like, who showed us what God's love looks like. He took the initiative toward us. Jesus is the one who took the full weight of our human sin on his own shoulders and paid the price for that sin. He took the initiative. Jesus rose again from the dead, victorious over sin and death and evil. And now Jesus offers us forgiveness and new life and adoption as sons and daughters of God and eternal life. Jesus is taking the initiative toward us. And Jesus in our lives is constantly taking the initiative toward us. He is coming to us. He is speaking to us. He is calling us to himself. And if we will receive him, he is adopting us and he is giving us his spirit and he is giving us new life and shaping us into the image of God. Jesus is constantly taking the initiative toward us and he always will. The Bible says that Jesus is the one who will one day return to this world. He will set this world right and resurrect his followers to spend eternity with him. Jesus is the one taking the initiative toward us. And if Jesus takes that initiative toward us, then how can we not be the hospitality extending, the, the life and gospel sharing, the, the others reaching, the initiative taking people that Jesus has called us to be? And so it falls to us very simply to do one thing. Take the initiative. Take the initiative. 
Taking the initiative begins by saying yes to Jesus who has already taken the initiative toward you. Jesus is taking the initiative toward you today. The Pharisees made the sad mistake in their day of not seeing the initiative that Jesus was taking toward them for what it was and what it could do for them. They turned it down and they walked away. What a sad thing. Don't make the same mistake that the Pharisees made. Because you see, Jesus is the great physician who offers to heal your soul. Jesus is the faithful one who offers to make you one of his now and forever. Say yes to Jesus who has taken the initiative toward you. Take the initiative too and share the gospel. The Pharisees were desperately afraid of Jesus going where lost people are and showing them a different way. But Jesus is the one who goes where the sinners are. Jesus is the one who brings into those sinful places light of hope in him. Jesus is the one who offers in those places forgiveness and new life. And now Jesus says to us, you, my disciples, go and do as I have done. Take the initiative and, like Jesus, share the gospel with lost people who desperately need to hear about him. But take the initiative and simply build relationships. Now, what does it look like to take the initiative and build relationships? It can look like reaching out to someone that you need to get to know. It, it may look as simple as pick up the phone and call someone and have a conversation that you've needed to have. It may be as simple as when you're in small talk with someone, listen to what they're actually saying and seek to get to know them. It may involve taking the initiative to start plans that no one else is going to start. You start the plans. It may look like saying to someone who desperately needs to hear it, I love you. And it may look like taking the initiative to begin the process of reconciliation in a relationship that has become broken. What does it look like for you to take the initiative, and build a relationship. I found out and realized this past week that I have blown it in taking the initiative in an important relationship. I get together once a week with a prayer partner. He and I meet and share prayer requests with each other and pray for one another, and it's an important part of my week. And when I was together with my prayer partner this week, he asked me a question about a couple, a young couple that I've been praying for uh, for a long time. They don't know Jesus. And he asked me, what's changed with them this week? And I said, um, 
nothing. And he's asked me that same question every time we've been together for the past three months. And every time, my answer has been the same. And I tell myself, I'm busy. I tell myself there's some uncomfortable conversations that need to happen. I tell myself I'm doing more important things than that. But the truth of the matter is that I know that God wants me to build that relationship. And the truth of the matter is that God has been speaking to me and I have been ignoring him and saying no to him. And so I am confessing that to you today. Partly because I know now that since I've told you, I can't not do it. And I'm confessing that to God and I'm asking for his forgiveness and I'm repenting and planning to obey him. How about you? Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.